The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Your brain might just help you learn something in more ways than one. Welcome to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Dr. Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He'll be your guide on this crazy exploration designed to bring life back to our existence. Can you become the element of change in an ever-changing world? Possibly, but you've got to listen on to find out. Now, here's the host of Absurd Psychology, Dr. Gary Bell. Welcome to Absurd Psychology. This is Dr. Gary Bell. Today, we are going to go into a lesson in psychological theory. Um, This is really a show for the wannabe therapist, for the people who uh, like to do uh, uh, self-evaluation and self-psychology. It's it's basically just a, a very quick overview of a lot of theories that most therapists have to learn and most psychologists have to learn uh, to do the job. Unfortunately, what is strange, and, and I found this extremely odd when I was receiving my education, was that all Every single one of the the staple theories that all of us have to learn in this field of psychology, all these theories were developed before insurance. All these theories were developed when people paid cash to see a psychologist. And what is strange about it is, is that these theories were cultivated for people that were very committed to process and change and had time on their hands. And what I'm trying to say is, if anybody practices most all of these theories in true form, uh, they're, they're playing to a very, very wealthy uh, client that has a lot of time on their hands. And so what is interesting is that in studying psychology, there is no way that any therapist or psychologist can walk out and simply understand theory and practice psychology in any a constructive way and helpful way to anyone because the truth is you have to use all of these types of theories including ones that I won't even talk about to actually come to grips with what a client needs and what a person needs therapy is extremely individuated it is about the clients issues and issues they may not even know they have but are prevalent when you look from the outside in. And so, you know, looking at these theories, it, it's, it's, uh, it's very mythic, uh, mystical in a sense of, of who these, these uh, theories were constructed towards. They were constructed towards, once again, people that were very committed to a process of change that needed change, and they were in desperate need of health, help and uh, mental health assistance. So, um, you know, the deal is, is you can learn the basis of these theories 
and you can actually work on your own issues. And so as I was going through this material, because I've taught this material before uh, to people that I supervise in this field, and what is interesting is there is something for all of us in this stuff because these theories are very human, and they, they work with our brain, and they work with how we operate and how we think. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with Freudian psychology, which is where a lot of psychology began you know, Freud made this very popular, but he was actually a medical doctor, if you, if you didn't know that, before he went into the field of psychology. He branched into the field of psychology because he saw that people had symptoms to medical issues that weren't necessarily attributed to the biological issues, but to how they think. And when you cured the things about how they think, what he was able to do is get a medical cure at the same time. He was an absolute genius. He was also extremely arrogant and, and kept... Uh, he was very uh, uh, strong about what he knew and discounted what other people knew um, in many ways. But Freud was an absolute genius, and he is where I'm going to start today. His goals uh, were insight. Insight, analysis, and catharsis. Now, what are these things? Insight means looking deeper into an issue than is on the surface. Analysis is, is, is providing the data and reflecting it back to the client and, and showing them exactly what's going on. And then catharsis is, is an awakening. It means that it's an aha moment, a moment of discovery where, wow, okay, now I get it. I finally get it. And that's what the catharsis is because without a catharsis, most people will not change. They will go back to what they always do. But knowledge is power. And when you've discovered new knowledge, it changes the way you think and it changes the way you operate and it changes many things about you. So knowledge is what is needed from a Freudian psychology and giving that back to the client is extremely self-important. Uh, Freud believed in facilitating client to self-exploration and, and for the client to take a look at their assumptions about experiences, events, and their, their emotional reactions to them. And what he would do is he would lay people on his couch. They would, they, it was kind of like a little daybed type of thing. And have them free associate, which is what they would do is they would basically look at an object or look at the ceiling and begin talking about everything that comes into their mind without looking at the psychologist. Now, there's many movie, uh, 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 famous movie uh, scenes where the psychologist is asleep behind the client while they're free associating, staring at the ceiling, pouring their guts out, uh, which is extremely funny. And I imagine Freud did that. But he kept copious notes on what his clients would say when they would free associate because he felt that that was getting to what is called the subconscious mind. Uh, similarly, he also did what's called dream analysis, which is used to connect current crises to past events. And, and the truth is, is that dreams, and this, this is today's modern look at dreams and putting it back into Freud's uh, context, dreams basically are an emotional event that you invent in your brain to, to elicit emotion and to get it out of your system. If you've had a bad day the previous day and, and you've gone through a lot of emotional uh, 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 problems, what will happen is, if it hasn't been processed, the dream is like the REM stage of sleep is in the delta stage. And in that stage, is about 20 minutes long for the average person. And during that period, the brain will snip it together, all kinds of scenes from the past, from the present, from moments that the brain has constructed from events in the past. And it will process in a very different way than the memory actually took place 
the emotions and the, the, the events that are constructed are there to push you through those emotions so that the next morning you'll wake up and basically feel like you're refreshed and reset. And so what Freud did is he took that content, those, those, those things you would remember to process your emotions through, and he would take those and analyze them because those were important milestones in your life. And he would take that as content for a person because the brain would readily remember that. And brain is fairly lazy, so it would go to the memories that are right at the top of the mind. Also, with, with Freud, the, the therapist or psychologist listens, they reflect, and reflect means basically give the client back what they've said, you know, validate, okay, so what you're telling me is this. And then sometimes interprets in order to help the client recognize important patterns, meanings, and feelings that are close to awareness. And so from Freudian psychology, it was very important for the client to be able to reach back into their feelings and understand what meanings were there. And so Freud would spend hours and hours and hours, and they even lived at his home. Uh, he didn't have that many clients, by the way. He, he only had maybe 12 to 15 clients throughout his whole profession because he spent most of his time writing. However, his clients he would use to, to augment his theory, theoretical process. But, but during these patterns and meanings, uh, what he would do is correlate based on all the time that he would spend with the client learning about their past and going through their past and analyzing them. Also, there's a thing called transference. And what transference is, is basically if I'm angry at my father, Freud would become the father and he would allow you to basically vent on him what you would normally say to your father. Freud would react like the father, use phrases that the father would use, and I'm using father as an example. It could be mother, it could be cousin, it could be brother, sister, whatever it is. But he would basically reflect back to the client this uh, their process, and he would basically act like that person in their life. And from doing that, what he would do is use that transference to get the client emotionally involved. And when they would do that, they would engage with Freud and they would vent their their emotional uh, needs and emotional problems with him. And he would be able to get more detail out of that analysis by doing that with these clients. Also, he would work through unconscious material. And unconscious material is stuff that just comes out. And that's why free association was so important. He would work through unconscious material and defense mechanisms like denial, repression, uh, what's called reaction formation, uh, which is like an automatic reaction that you would have uh, that you've been trained to have to various events. He also used a thing called projection, which is much like transference. When you project on someone else, like your spouse, when you come home, maybe you've had a bad day. Instead of taking it out on your boss, you take it out on your spouse. He also looked at displacement and rationalization. Uh, dis, you know, displacement is something where it, it would display the, the, where you would take something out of context and actually react to something in a whole different environment than the one that you wanted to react to. And uh, he also used regression, which is kind of like what you do when you go back in time and become who you were back when you were younger. He would try to talk to you from those periods of life uh, where you look to be most vulnerable mentally.
He also used um, compensation, uh, which means how you give back to yourself, how you compensate for, let's say, if, if you've had a bad day, what you turn to to, uh, to make up for it. And, and so he, he looked at all kinds of different issues. Also, identification was one that was very, very important to him. And identification is very simple. Uh, what it would be is basically what your ego identifies with, what the persona that you've developed to other people identifies with. If you identify being a golfer, if you identify with being a, 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 a traveler, uh, whatever things you identify with, how you personify yourself, he would also analyze that too. And he also looked at people's rituals, and uh, he also worked on a process called undoing, which was taking away from what you did normally and undo it and to see if it's necessary. And so what he would do is simplify the person, strip away their problems and how they cope with their problems, and basically help them understand how to work through it. Also, there was a thing called countertransference, which is something that's extremely dangerous, but Freud came up with this term. And countertransference basically is when the therapist or the psychologist actually projects on the client uh, what is coming up in their mind. So let's say you have a very argumentative client that is very angry with you, and instead of projecting on that client and and compromising and, and, and being compassionate and empathetic with them, what you would actually do is project your own problems on the client. Now, many therapists will do that. They'll jump into the soup and actually have problems with their clients because they're actually projecting their own problems on the client, and that can cause enormous issues. Okay, now, now there's another psychology that is called neo-Freudian psychology, and, and it, it was developed by a guy named Eric Erickson, and it's called ego-based psychology. And... and Basically, what he would say is an individual is confronted with a specific crisis at each stage of development. The first stage is trust versus mistrust, which is in the zero to first year of life. The next stage, and these are developmental stages, and it's so important to understand this, autonomy versus shame and doubt, and that is in the second year of life. And now shame and doubt comes from a parent basically saying no quite often to 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 a young child when they're trying to explore and become their own individual the the next the next stage of development is called initiative versus guilt and this is when the child is actually stepping out and instead of having instructions is actually forming their own initiative and then guilt is the projection the parent places on the child when they don't feel like they're doing the things right. And many things get messed up during these stages. For instance, in trust versus mistrust, it's important to know that a, client, a, a, a child's safety, a baby, a toddler, their first year of life, their evaluation is how safe am I? And, and a lot of their security and self-esteem comes from that stage. If they don't feel that they trust their environment, if they don't feel that their parent is safe, that causes enormous damage in the relationship with that child. That child will become shy, will become aloof, and will have poor communication skills with their parents if they don't feel safe with them. Uh, autonomy and initiative, these are something that a child has got to have. If you want the child to be their own individual, you want them to flourish. You don't want to focus on the negative of what they've done. You want to focus on the positives of what they do. Now, the next stage is 6 to 12, and this is called industry 
versus inferiority. And industry means praising, 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 praising for them, taking their own initiative and building and making things happen. This is when they create. This is when they get good grades. This is when they, they take on projects and complete them. This is where you're teaching values to your child and you're praising them for the good things and not focusing on the negative. Now, the next stage is 13 to 18, and this is a very strange phase because during that time, and once again, I'm talking directly to Eric Erickson's theories, identity versus role confusion. Identity is very interesting because if you go to a high school and you see these kids at 13 to 18 basically looking like each other, like you've got the goths and they got the punks and you got the heavy metals and all, all the different groups, you know, the gangbangers, what, whatever – these groups, these kids identify with a group. They identify with different people. Some kids identify with parts of different people, and basically they, they, they try a personality on. They see a kid's into a certain kind of music. They try that on. It either fits or it goes away. They try on all kinds of weird things, and this is a very awkward phase of life that many people look at them and go, you are so weird. Well, they're weird because they're experimenting. They're experimenting with the big question, which is, who am I? Now, 18 to 32 to 42 is intimacy versus isolation, and, and this is huge. Uh, intimacy means that you're able to form bonds with other people. It doesn't necessarily mean sex. But what it does mean is y you are a person that is very good with other people. And the more you interrelate with other people, the more you empathize and compassion, the more relationships and friendships you build during this stage of life is going to dictate how well you socialize into your later stages in life. And so what, what uh, Eric Erickson found was we would need to form very strong bonds during that period for us to have a good social life later on. What's interesting is many people form a lot of social bonds when they're, let's say, married, and what they discover if they get divorced is they lose those and may end up being another person. So you don't want to form all your bonds with uh, your spouse. You want to form bonds of friendship with other people. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to finish up with Eric Erickson, and then we're going to go into other neo-Freudian psychology. Thanks for listening. We're on Facebook along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. Dr. Gary Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist in Southern California, but he is here to help you no matter where you are. Visit drgbmft.com. You can schedule an appointment with Dr. Bell, and many major health insurance plans are accepted. Call or text Dr. Bell today at 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com. Dr. Bell could help you take back your life in four to eight carefully constructed sessions. Stop coping and start living in the now. Call 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com today. Do you like what you're hearing on the show today? Dr. Gary Bell wants to help you no matter where you are. He's fast, efficient, effective, and has a no-bull approach to helping you in less than 10 sessions. If you're ready to change right now, drop everything and call or text Dr. Bell at 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com today. You can also follow Dr. Bell on Twitter at drgbmft for some great insight and direction. 
Are you ready? Make that change. Pick up the phone or go to the site, 951-818-7856 or drgbmft.com. Remember, drgbmft.com. We're on Facebook, along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it'll take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Dr. Gary Bell with Absurd Psychology. Thanks for listening today. We're talking about neo-Freudian psychology and uh, Eric Erickson. We just covered intimacy versus isolation. The next stage that Erickson covered is generativity versus stagnation. And this is from 32 to 55. And what's very important about generativity is, is that we are not somebody that simplifies our life to the point that we are just a whole bunch of rituals, and that's all we are, that we do the same thing every day, day after day. Generativity means that we reach out in our life and we experiment, and we take lots of experiments and lots of chances and do lots of different things. And generativity means that we have a full and rich life because we are expanding. The problem is many people go into stagnation because they ritualize so much that they're not able to enjoy new things or even do new things. And so what Erickson was very concerned about is that people would not reach out in their life and fully develop who they are, that they would stagnate, and that they would end up isolating themselves. Now, the last stage, and I find this the most important phase, uh, stage, is from 55 to, to death, and it's called integrity versus despair. And I will tell you, integrity is huge. It's a very important word. It's a very important meaning to our life because integrity means that you basically do what you say you're going to do, that you're a person that can be trusted, that when you say you're going to do something, you do it, you follow through. And, and that is a very important thing for all of us because if you have integrity, you become a person that people want to relate to. And the people that manage their integrity through the course of their life tend to be very magnetic and have lots of friends and lots of good people around them. And that's because they can be trusted. And the people that don't manage their integrity, the people that have problems with that and go into despair where they have many wrecked relationships, what happens is they isolate themselves. And I will tell you that many people lose relationships with their friends and family, end up in nursing homes with nobody visiting, and that's because they didn't manage their integrity in their life. So integrity is something you always want to get back. And the way to get that back, even if you failed, is to ask people to have faith in you. Have faith in me. Believe in me. I need you to believe in me. If you do that and you manage it well and you actually follow through with what you've promised, people have a much stronger relationship with you. Now, in Neo-Freudian psychology, we also have a, a social psychology, which is a guy named Eric Fromm. Now, Fromm 
his primary task is to become the person that one has the potential, that, that a person becomes the one person that their potential is possible for them, that they, that they are able to get to their potential. It's, it's an existential view that emphasizes themes of loneliness, belongingness, isolation, and the meaning of life. And, and basically what he would relate to, and, and once again, he's going for human potential. I didn't state that very well, but he's looking at a person's potential. The five needs of the human condition, according to Eric Fromm, was relatedness, transcendence, which is above animal nature, rootedness, which means connection, identity, which means uniqueness, and frame of orientation, which is a, sta- a safe and stable way to look at the world. And so people, in his mind, would relate to things and migrate to things, and you could analyze them based on how they related to people and how they related to objects and how they relate to events. Transcendence is the ability to go beyond uh, an animal instinct, an animal reaction, a defensiveness, and actually rise above that and think through problems and actually use your mind rather than your emotions to dictate your life. And so he would would analyze to what level you were able to do that. He also looked at your connectedness, meaning how... How much do you identify in the now? Is your brain all caught up in the past or are you caught up in future fears or are you here? Are you connected? And so that was a very critical component to his uh, viewpoint and that's an existentialistic viewpoint. He also looked at identity, which is uniqueness. You know, where do you identify? What do you identify with? You know, somebody, let's say he's a cowboy and they identify with horses and they identify with rodeos and they identify with a fake southern accent and all kinds of crazy stuff you know that that may be how they looked at themselves and so he would analyze that and he also looked at the frame of orientation once again which is how a person sees the world you know are you a democrat are you republican or you know what whatever whatever the points of view that are important to that person he would analyze to what they gravitate to not to judge them but to help them and to help them understand and to actually expand on their point of view and give them more options as to how to react to the world and how to live in this world he also uh looked at five character types uh which are called orientations in his mind which is are you receptive are you uh, a person that is exploitive, where you depend on other people? Are you a hoarder? Are, are you a marketer? People are, are objects, and basically you try to use them to, for your own ability. And then what's called a productive, which is somebody that is reached their full potential. So that's Eric Fromm in a nutshell, and that's how he would view people. Once again, a receptive person means somebody that takes in other people, uh, the, the exploitive, somebody that is, exploits other people, the hoarder, somebody who stacks and stacks and stacks all their stuff all over the place to where nobody can get through. Uh, hoarding can take place in all kinds of different uh, levels and in different lives. Uh, it's in, it's other, in other theorists' idea, it's a form of depression. Also, marketing, which uh, once again, people are objects, people are things. And then uh, the productive person in Fromm's point of view, he would look at that as a healthy, fully rounded person. Now, there's another neo-Freudian psychologist, and his name was Harry Stack Sullivan. And he believed in a thing that is much more modern uh, than analysis, and that is called interpersonal therapy. And what he would do is power, in his mind, 
is the motive that underlies all human impulses and operates throughout life to overcome a basic feeling of helplessness. He believed that all people's motivations, all of them, were related to power and that clients should gain a larger degree of clarity about themselves and how they're living with others to change. And that means how do they use their, their need for power? How do they assume power? Do they get angry? Do they, do they fight with people? Do they manipulate people? Do they lie? How do they operate? And so he would basically look at their interpersonal operation and how they view the world, how they work with people, and how they receive and give power in their life. And those were how he would correlate a person's character, and from that is how he would... Uh, he would help them uh, make better exchanges in the world and inter interpersonal exchanges with other people. And his desire, uh, this is Harry Stack Sullivan, was to stop the need to verify motives and interpretation with others and look to ourselves for answers. So instead of trying to get validation, we would actually look for knowledge within ourselves. And we would look for knowledge in a way that it would be constructive and helpful for us. There's also another neo-Freudian psychologist, and her name was Karen Horney. And she did a thing called social psychology, where humans have inborn potential for growth. And that's what she believed, that childhood experiences create character, but fixation on life conditions stops growth. Otherwise, we grow until old age. And so what she's saying is, we're just children when we're, ch when we're being raised by our parents. And basically, as children, we are not able to uh, make a lot of decisions. And those decisions are made by our parents. And as that happens, what, ha what takes place is we form a life and a way of looking at the world through our parents' perspectives and what they teach us. But what she's saying is life doesn't stop in childhood. You become your own person. You become your own adult. And you need to expand your experiences into life and not frame your life around your childhood, but become who you are when you grow up and you become an adult and you experience life and start making your own individual choices and your ways of reacting to the world rather than going back to childhood experiences. Experiences. She also looked that, that anxiety comes from a child's feelings of isolation and helplessness in a hostile environment and a hostile world. And, and she saw that, that many of the environments for children was, was hostile and the world is a hostile place. And this it stems from, from a child's disturbed security, attacking coping skills of submissiveness, uh, self-isolation, aggressiveness. Uh, uh, coping mechanisms are developed in childhood that can stunt growth and manifest itself as a drive or a need. And this is huge because I see people coping with their marriage in very childish ways, and that's because they're using coping skills they developed as children. For instance, they would, uh, you know, one uh, there's a thing called transactional analysis where one person would start talking to the other as if they're a child, and then uh, a parent talking to a child, and then the other person talks to the person back. Uh, you know, you can't talk to me like that. I'm you don't do this either. Blah blah blah. And so they basically go parent to child, parent to child, parent to child, and by doing that, it creates a lot of issues. But that's something that's correlated from childhood. That's an experience that you've learned from childhood, and we, we do not like it because it's a power position which doesn't belong in marriage. Adult dialogue belongs in marriage, which is calm, straight, uh, and not something that's accusatory. And so what's extremely important is that if you use a, a child coping skills, according to Karen Horney, 
these things have to be attacked in therapy and correlated back to adult ways of coping that are yours rather than your childhood. She looked at 10 neurotic needs, which is affection and approval, a dominant partner, a, a, a restrictive life, which is security over growth, power, exploitation of others, prestige, personal admiration, personal achievement, independence, and protection. These were the neurotic needs of all humans. Affections and approval, a dominant partner, restrictive life, which is security over growth, power, exploitation of others, prestige, personal admiration, personal achievement, independence, and protection. These fundamental needs, when they're not being met, a person will try to meet them. And what she did is analyze how people would meet these needs. And, and these needs, if they are done to a great extent, become a neurosis. And that neurosis is what affects the person. And so that's how Karen Horney looked at people and how she looked at therapy. Now, there was a wonderful man named Viktor Frankl uh, who wrote uh, uh, several books, but he wrote a great book. It's a very simple one. It's called Man's Search for Meaning, which is about existentialism. Um, existentialism was developed by Kierkegaard back in the 1700s, but Viktor Frankl uh, basically went into this process and really formed it into a form of therapy. Now, what is existentialism? Well, he lived in concentration camps in Germany. He wrote a book about existentialism, and when he did that, uh, they took it away from him when he went to the concentration camps. And he was there for over three years. And the one way he survived was being able to live in the moment. He stopped trying to worry about whether he was going to die. He was a medical doctor, and he stopped worrying about if his clients or his patients were going to die. What he worried about is, is interacting with them in the now, being fully available. And by doing that, that was the one thing that nobody could take away from him. So Viktor Frankl was a very powerful man. And after he left the concentration camps and formed existential therapy, what was really cool about this guy is he actually went to prisons where there was a lot of prison violence during that time. And we're talking about after World War II. And he basically taught prisoners how to live in prison. And so his thoughts were humans must keep their spiritual freedom and independence of mind. The meaning of existence is a never a fixed thing. We are engaged in an ongoing process of discovery and value and meaning. So we live in the moment. We live in a collective moment. Each moment is your meaning of your life. Not uh, certain events, not certain occasions, but each moment you live in, if you're fully available, that is the meaning of your existence. And, and, and the therapist in this process is open to sharing their personal reactions, disclose experiences that are similar to the client, so it humanizes the therapist where it's not just a one-way dialogue, where it's a two-way dialogue where the therapist is sharing their life and the client is sharing their life, and they're both meeting in the middle, but it's a constructive dialogue, a purposeful dialogue. Also, the therapist would challenge the client to examine how they avoid making decisions and empower a client by encouraging choice-making. And choice-making has to do with the here and now. What is good for you now? That's Viktor Frankl's thought process in therapy and his contribution to psychology. A gestalt therapy is a guy named Frederick Pearls. Now, Frederick Pearls, um, 
he looked at people as they must find their own way in life and take responsibility if they want to achieve maturity. That people are irresponsible and you don't have a life until you decide to take responsibility. That you and they statements are not valid. That I statements, what did I do? How did I contribute? These are the ways in which he would view a client. He didn't care about their projections of, of being victims. What he cared about is what they did. What they did, even if it was just to develop a perception rather than a truth. The goals of Gestalt was to gain awareness, accept responsibility for thoughts, feelings, and behavior, reconcile polarities, which is two different uh, uh, opposite end uh, needs you may have or thoughts you may have. You may have, let's say, uh, now that we're in this Republican and Democratic process, uh, the election process, you may have Democratic values and Republican uh, alignment. You know, what? who are you? You know, you're completely opposite. So he would look at people's polarities and their perspectives, and he would give that back to them and ask them to take accountability. What are you? What are you about? Define yourself. Integrate personality parts together so you aren't one way to one person, one way to another person, that you're one way all the time, that this is who you are. And when you talk, that's who you are. And because many people uh, act, they, 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 don't, they project a persona, and he would want people to be real and, and get down to life. He did techniques that are very famous. One of them is very much like uh, Freudian uh, uh, free association. It's basically the empty chair, and, and this, the therapist is on one side and the client is on the other playing the opposite roles, and basically uh, this transference process uh, the, the the client would basically talk to an empty chair as if that person is somebody that was meaningful in their life that created a very negative event. And also role-playing between the therapist and the client, which is, once again, uh, transference uh, in the Freudian aspect, was something that Gestalt used. He also focused on process rather than content, um, and I statements were important. And uh, why statements were very much discouraged. And if you think about a why, if you ask why questions, people take great offense to them because they are about uh, a person basically um, having a, uh, a motive that is not good. When you're asked a why question, it's almost like, well, you already know why. You've come to your own conclusion, and people get very defensive when they're asked that. We're going to take another break. We're going to come back to Carl Jung. This is Absurd Psychology with Dr. Gary Bell. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Dr. Gary Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist in Southern California, but he is here to help you no matter where you are. Visit DRGBMFT.com. You can schedule an appointment with Dr. Bell, and many major health insurance plans are accepted. Call or text Dr. Bell today at 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com. Dr. Bell could help you take back your life in four to eight carefully constructed sessions. Stop coping and start living in the now. Call 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com today. Do you like what you're hearing on the show today? 
Dr. Gary Bell wants to help you no matter where you are. He's fast, efficient, effective, and has a no-bull approach to helping you in less than 10 sessions. If you're ready to change right now, drop everything and call or text Dr. Bell at 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com today. You can also follow Dr. Bell on Twitter at drgbmft for some great insight and direction. Are you ready? Make that change. Pick up the phone or go to the site, 951-818-7856 or drgbmft.com. Remember, drgbmft.com. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel, voiceamericaempowerment.com. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it'll take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back to Absurd Psychology. This is Dr. Gary Bell. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, uh, Carl Jung. Carl Jung, and we're talking about uh, basic uh, psychological theories. And this is more for a self-help process. It's basically kind of skipping through the history of psychology and looking at various different theories and giving you the framework of what most therapists and psychologists work from. Carl Jung was a student of uh, of Freud and uh, Sigmund Freud, and he was very intelligent man. Uh, Carl Jung took a lot of Freudian theory and actually gelled it into his own theory, but he also cultivated and took it many steps further than Freud was able to come to grips with. Um, with Carl Jung, he felt there was this thing called a collective unconscious that could be tapped, utilized, and developed. I mean, he developed terminology such as the ego, which is the way we personify ourselves, the self, which is the real person you are, the personal unconscious, which is the things that we really think about that we don't talk about. And then he called what the other thing was the collective unconsciousness, which is basically a storehouse of significant memories or archetypes passed on from generation to generation. Let's say, um, you know, if uh, your family was always in the army or always in the military, then that may be something that your memories and your archetypes are very important in your life. So you'll reflect on those from generation to generation. You'll pass them on. If you had... uh, uh, doctors or lawyers in your family, you may correlate a lot of those memories and the people that uh, are in your family that used to do that. If you're a musical family, you may do the same thing. So the collective unconscious is, is basically the unconscious with themes of where we came from in our past and where our family came from. Personal unconsciousness is our own personal struggles, our own personal thinking. Also, there's this thing that he used to call archetypes, and we talked about that. Basically, it's, it's a, basically these are partially developed memories. These are not full memories. These are, these are memories where we look in terms of black and white. We, we basically call people good or evil in these memories. They're kind of like melodramas. And, and uh, these memories 
are not fully gelled because they don't always go into each person's motive or understanding of where people were coming from. They just come from the archetype of how you see them based on the character they played in your memory. There's also a thing called a persona for young, and that is your public self. That is the display you make of who you are. And uh, the persona is extremely important. Also, he, he used the terminology, and these, these are Latin terms, anima and animus, which is yin and yang. Anima is, is uh, our animal part of us, and animus is our human part of us. And so he would basically break down the human character in forms of how we are as animals and how we are as humans. And, and what are our animal drives that are so important, and what are our human drives? I mean, you, you talk about people that, uh, let's just say, uh, you know, some people say they have, I don't even believe in this, but they say they have sexual addiction or whatever. Well, that would be an anima problem. Uh, rather than an animus problem. It's because the animus isn't integrated into that person's thinking, and now we have to humanize that process so they can actually think in both sides of their brain rather than just the animal part of their brain. There's also the shadow, uh, which is the part of our life, and this is very interesting. A shadow, in his mind, is the, the secrets in our life that we would rather not acknowledge, the things about us that we would rather not acknowledge that follow us everywhere we go. Many of us know celebrities or people that have done stupid things in their life. And everywhere they go, once they've, once they've developed that shadow, they're seen, they're, they, people look at the shadow rather than who they are. They look at the event in their life that walks with them because that is their history. And so what Carl Jung looked at is what kind of shadow people would have, what kind of baggage they carry when they come into a room based on their history and who they are to other people. The goals of Carl Jung was awareness of material and personal and collective unconscious, recognition and acceptance of our shadow and integration of the anima and the animus. These were his major goals. And awareness of material and our personal and collective conscious is so important because if we recognize, okay, well, I come from a military family, let's say, and I don't, but, but let's just say we, you, know, you did. You came from a military family. Well, yeah, that's one thing, but is that who you are? Is that really who you are? And let's analyze what your personal wants and needs are, what the, pers- the things you put aside uh, to be a father, to be a mother, to be, to be a partner, to be, to be an employee. What are the things you put aside for yourself that you would rather be doing? And, and that, you, that, that is about you. And so what he looked at is that personal unconscious versus the uh, collective unconscious. How much of your life is dictated by what you're supposed to do according to your family rather than who you are or according to your friends? Are you the person that you want to be? And that's how, how uh, uh, Carl Jung basically would look at a person. He also looked at the, um, your shadow and saying, hey, you know, these things follow my life, and uh, these things are how I'm seen. And basically, I come to peace with that. I accept that not everybody is going to know me for who I am. Not everybody is going to know everything about me. All I can do is continue to be me with all of my mistakes, all my frailties, all the things that are awful in my life. I need to walk with them and make peace because I'm human. And so instead of personifying a persona, putting a public self on that is false to who you are, what he was most wanting you to do was grab the negatives in your life and accept them. Accept them and make peace with them. And if you do that, less people will see you through that filter because they'll see you who you are today rather than who you were. 
they may begin to judge you based on who you were, but eventually the you that you are will eventually come through. He also uh, integrated the anima and the animus that if you starve either side of yourself, the human side, the logical side, and if you starve the animal side, if you starve either one of these parts of you, you are going to find them coming out in ways that are not constructive for your life. And so what he would try to do is form where can you be and, you know, where can you dance crazy and, and, and have a good time and be you know, just somebody who's thoughtless and, and, and enjoy yourself, where can you also be human and logical and fully available? You have to develop both muscles. You can't develop just one. And so Jung would look at a person and see how much of your life is spent being impulsive and crazy and how much of your life is being logical. And do you, you know, if you're not, if you're not human, if you're not logical, if you don't have that part of you developed, you need it because that is the part of you that should be running the show. Um, but you also have to have the fun and all that good stuff. So some people are way out of balance. So he looked at balance as a very important collective role in a person's life. And that, that's, that's in a, in a very simple summary. That is Carl Jung's theories. Person-centered therapy was really cool. Person-centered therapy was developed by a guy named Carl Rogers. It's one of the first uh, therapies that most people learn because it's so easy. And basically what uh, Carl Rogers did was uh, he would not respond to people. He would just reflect back what they're saying. Oh, okay, so what you're telling me is this. So uh, uh, here's, here's what you've told me. Here's how you're telling me. He would not direct the, the client to say anything, that, that all the clients were responsible and possessed the power to direct their own lives, that he would not offer his opinions or he would not even offer any options. He would just simply do reflective listening. Okay, I understand. So what you're telling me is this. Okay, I get it. That's kind of what he would do, and, and it was just a listener. And what he found was most people are not heard by many people, and they die for that. And so what he would do is he developed very profound relationships with people just by listening, not by speaking, not by offering knowledge, just by offering them an opportunity to speak about their own needs. And so he used the thing that he termed as unconditional positive regard, which is just empathy and genuineness to all his clients, psychotic, neurotic included, just allowing them a place to process and to discover within themselves answers that they already had within them. He believed that all people had the answers within them if they would just talk them through and develop that conversation with themselves, that they actually would come to a conclusion by verbalizing their thoughts. He believed that that was the way to reach the unconscious. And uh, his goals was independence and integration of your thoughts, the growth of the person, and the climate for fully functioning person. And, and congruency was critical to him, that a person was congruent, that they were real, that they were full and truthful and honest with themselves. And if they did that, he felt people would reach a whole different perspective on life, that they would discover growth within themselves, and they would feel good about it. He also felt that people would own the process by doing that kind of therapy. So basically, this is what many armchair therapists, meaning people that have never studied psychology, would do uh, if they want to be very good, is become very good listeners and not big responders. Very good reflective listeners. Just allow people to talk and give them that forum. Um, 
And it's good, it's good therapy. It really is. I find it boring, but it's very good therapy. Now, there's another guy that was completely opposite. And uh, he, and, he and Carl Rogers actually did a uh, video together where they actually worked on, with a client forming, using their therapy. And what's interesting is Carl Rogers formed an incredible bond with this lady that both of them uh, worked with. And, and developed a really cool lifelong relationship where she wrote him letters her whole life. Not love letters, but just letters. They were friends. What was interesting is Albert Ellis treated the same woman and ended up marrying her. So Albert Ellis developed this rational emotive behavioral therapy, REBT. And, and this is basically opposite of Rogers, where the therapist is actually a teacher. The therapist and the client dispute the irrational beliefs. Where is the evidence for this belief? People have beliefs and he would attack them. You know, so you believe that you are right. Well, what makes you think you're right? And, and what is the event? What is the activating event and, and attitude that uh, around being right? He would also attack the belief. You know, what is the belief that has developed here inside yourself and he would go after that belief and how you've cultivated that belief about yourself and then it causes basically C and it's called ABC model C it causes the consequence or the emotional reaction you're currently having well you may be angry because you always have to be right but the consequence is nobody wants to talk to you ever again because they're sick of you always wanting to be right so um, basically what he would do is he would take these activating events and, and attack them and basically go after where are all these events that have made you believe that you're always right. He would, he would develop the belief. He would come to that and then he would tell them this is what you're doing by doing this. And, and so he would teach people through the ABC model, the activating event, the belief and the consequence or emotional reaction that's coming out. Therefore, people would be more conscious of their own behavior and what they were getting. You know, if I do this and do this, this is what I'm going to get. And so he would basically make people be responsible for their outcomes. If, if they don't like how people perceive them, if they don't like how events go, they have to acknowledge their own contribution and how it has developed the ultimate event. You know, if uh, you're trying to uh, uh, make people at work work with you in a better way, and you've developed a very negative consequence, or you know your consequences are nobody can stand you. Maybe it's because you're the way you're talking to people. So we have to look at what are the events that have caused bad relationships with somebody. What are the beliefs that have come out of those events that people have made about you, and what are the consequences? And what you have to do is go back and try to create activating events that are positive that change your image. You have to develop new beliefs about you based on your behavior. And then you get new outcomes, which are consequences. He also did a lot of cognitive homework uh, requiring that of clients, which uh, tracks what he calls shoulds and musts. You know, he would say you're, you're shoulding all over yourself or you're masturbating. Uh, those were terms that he would use that are very funny. Um, but basically, he would uh, track... Where do you have all these absolutes in your life, which are shoulds and musts? And, and he would want you to change your, your language to something like I prefer. 
instead of a should or a must, I'd prefer. And, and basically, that's finding something in the middle that is not emotionally attached. Those words, should and must, have very strong emotional attachments to him. He also believed in changing one's language because language causes distorted thinking. And he would uh, replace shoulds with prefers. And he would get the client to think different. Now, there's another uh, uh, therapy that's practiced by many, but it's called cognitive behavior modification. And this is the most commonly used therapy there is, where the therapist actively attempts to alter uh, maladaptive thought patterns by changing a client's assumptions. Uh, specific behavioral tasks are used to modify faulty perceptions and interpretations of important life events. Uh, Mitchenbaum was a uh, therapist, and basically, what he would do, what you do, is you fake it till you make it. Um, you de- you develop a new behavior and a new way of thinking that you may not believe in, but you do that, and you see what the outcome is. And if you like it, then you you join it. Uh, Mitchenbaum uh, believed that the client is trained to identify maladaptive thoughts. Therapist models appropriate behavior while verbalizing which means you role play and then the client performs the target behavior first and then they basically play it back. Um, Haley and Beck also did this these kinds of therapies. Uh, one's called Strategic Family Therapy by Haley and it is extremely good therapy. But Beck also did this. All right, so that's our show. I've covered a lot of individual psychology. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, next week is going to be a tape show. The first show in December is going to be on depression. I want to thank everybody for listening. I'd love to hear from you. Get your feedback, drgbmft at sbcglobal.net or Twitter at drgbmft. Remember, depression is merely anger without enthusiasm. And if you think nobody cares, try missing a few payments. Thanks for listening, everybody. Absurd Psychology is Dr. Gary Bell. That's our show for this week. Please join Dr. Gary Bell for another edition of Absurd Psychology next Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now, go impress your friends and family with what you've learned today and have them tune in next week so they can be almost as smart as you. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.